1: everyone, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, We're so appreciative that you're all able to join us today for what should be a very interesting and, I think, timely discussion uh, here in Washington. Uh, My name is Daniel Kochis. I'm Senior Policy Analyst in the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom at the Heritage Foundation, and it is my pleasure uh, to introduce Veronica Antal-Hovarth, who is the Deputy Director of the uh, Antal Josef uh, Knowledge Center. She earned her degree in political science at the University of Pécs, Hungary. She was head of the Knowledge Center's V4 office before becoming International Relations Coordinator in 2016. She is a former trustee of the International Visegrad Fund, and since October 2017, she has been the deputy director of the Antal Josef Knowledge Center and is also head of the think tank BPP ST Conference, a strategic conference in Hungary focusing on digitalization and innovation. And let me please thank uh, the uh, Antal Yosef Knowledge Center for co hosting this event with us, and it is my pleasure uh, to introduce Veronica.
2: Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, as the Deputy Director of the Knowledge Center, I would like to welcome you at today's event, which is organized by the Heritage Foundation and the Knowledge Center. It is our pleasure to be here and cooperate with such a prestigious institution like Heritage. Thank you very much for that. Let me please introduce our institution in a few sentences. The Knowledge Center's main objectives in line of the philosophy of Joseph Antal, who was the first really elected prime minister after the regime change in Hungary, who served from 1990 to 1993 are talent management and providing students and young professionals with wide-ranging practical knowledge to various events, our institution is a Budapest-based think tank researching topics of national, regional and international relevance such as the V4 cooperation, the future global role of the U.S, China and the Middle East, security policy, sustainable development as well as technological and social innovation. The profile of the Knowledge Center is also characterized by research and publishing activities. We have two regional offices in Hungary, and we have a representation in Brussels, too, where Prime Minister Antal has a wing named after him at the European Parliament's building. At this event today, we will look at Central Europe from an American perspective, But I would also like you to know how Central European see Central Europe. This mutual mutual understanding is essential for building a sustainable and deep transatlantic alliance, which has to be our common interest, and beyond that, our common value. For that, it is essential to say a few words about the namesake of our institution, Jozef Anton. Joseph Antal visited the U.S. on many occasions and had the chance to meet President Reagan and President George W. Bush. PM Antal was a statesman who can deservedly be compared with the greatest political figures of the world, such as Margaret Thatcher, President Bush, or Helmut Kohl. But what did they offer us? Everything. Everything me and my generation take for granted today. Free movement without passport control, for example. This is a given today. 30 or 35 years ago, however, we couldn't even visit neighboring countries without strict control. We couldn't purchase products from America or any other Western country. It was unimaginable for us to access Western goods in such high quantities. I'm sure that many of you have visited Budapest. Now it is similar to any other Western capital. But it didn't used to be the case. It was George Antal who steered Hungary into the past of joining the transatlantic alliance. He had an invaluable role in the process of terminating the Warsaw Pact. He initiated with his colleagues, Václav Havel, and Lech like Walensa the establishment of the Visegrad cooperation, or re-establishment of the Visegrad cooperation, And the regime change in Hungary without bloodshed is also his achievement. Freedom, security, and a strong nation state. These concepts have different meanings in Central Europe than here in the US. Most of the time, it is the revolution of 1956 the Prague spring, or the dissolution of the Soviet bloc that people across the ocean learn about regarding the history of our our region. However, it is only a small portion of it. Central Europe has a rich and often tragic history. We were always caught up in the fight between the West and the East, and times drawn to one side than to the other. There was Turkish occupation, then we became a part of a big monarchical empire where we wanted to win more rights and bigger independence for ourselves. Then came Trianon and the Germans and the Russians. I don't want to delve into the topic of Trianon, but the consequences of Trianon that Hungary lost um, 71% of its territory and one third of their people. I only want to emphasize the fact that when a nation is split and millions of fellow citizens are forced to live in different country and assimilate due to that split that is something a nation cannot really recover from and then followed 40 years of communism at that time free press was indeed non-existent everything went under censorship and no criticism of system could be articulated. People as individuals ceased to exist. This is the reason why it is hard to get sponsorship from corporations in the Central European region. There was no enterprise culture or rather the one that existed was ruined. People were overcome with fear when a black one or the police appeared in front of their house. When someone was granted the opportunity to travel abroad, it was with trepidation that they drove through the borders. This ended with the system change. However, older generations still revisit these familiar feelings upon seeing a policeman or when traveling abroad. One cannot fully understand these if they didn't experience it. Please allow me another, uh, please allow me another train of thought, neighborhood, the Balkans. During his visit to the White House, President Bush asked for the opinion and advice of Joseph Antal regarding the resolution of the Balkan situation. We are neighboring regions. We do know know what it's like to have a war next door. This is the reason why we so persistently encourage Macedonia's NATO membership. To make Europe, to make sure Europe is safe. Looking at the map, Bosnia Herzegovina is 200 kilometers away from the borders of Hungary. ISIS has a training base there. Then, what are we talking about? It It is the essential interest of Central Europe and Europe as a whole to resolve the Balkan issue and help Serbia's. EU integration process, If we would like to have a future that is safe in Europe, then it is vital to maintain the American Security Alliance and the tight cooperation with NATO. In addition, I believe that continuously exchanging ideas in the think tank world is also an essential characteristic of this. For this reason, I'm very grateful that we can be here And discuss relations between Central Europe and the US. And now, please, allow me to introduce our speakers and panelists. And now we have His Excellency Laszlo Sabo, Ambassador of Hungary to the US, His Excellency um, Heinek Kominček, sorry for the pronunciation, uh, Ambassador of the Czech Republic to the US. Dominik P. Jankowski, political advisor and head of the political section at the Permanent Delegation of the Republic of Poland to NATO in Brussels. Dušan Fischer, project manager, Air Force and Counter-Air Defense Project Unit, modernization department at Ministry of Defense, Slovak Republic. And my colleague Péter Steppe, Stepper, who is a research fellow, senior research fellow at the Knowledge Center, and uh, he is the author of the um, textbook about the uh, Visegrad cooperation. So thank you very much for the, for the Heritage Foundation again, and I wish you a uh, fruitful discussion. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you, Veronica, for your... Uh... Introductory speech, and uh, I think it's the time to uh, start our discussion about, uh, on the one hand, uh, about the book uh, itself. I would like to uh, say a few words about uh, why uh, we are here today and uh, what is the whole uh, project uh, what we're implementing uh, with the generous support of the International Visegrad Fund. On the other hand, I'd like to grab the opportunity to uh, talk a bit about the uh, recent uh, political situation of the Visegrad group uh, how the Visegrad group is uh, working within uh, central european region because i'm not sure uh, all of you are uh, totally familiar with the uh, everyday uh, working and activities of the of the group itself and uh, how this kind of regional format uh, can uh, help uh, our bilateral li- re- uh, relations with the United States of America as well as uh, the transatlantic relations and our uh, NATO policies uh, as uh, as a whole. Uh, first of all, uh, I would like to uh, talk about the general idea why uh, we figured out to uh, do something uh, like this uh, textbook. Uh, touch upon the issue of the Visagrad uh, brand. I think uh, it's really important to uh, talk about uh, identity. And uh, my personal uh, Opinion is that uh, when uh, we are here in uh, Washington or, for example, in, in uh, Brussels, uh, we can have a feeling that uh, all of, uh, all of us, I mean, my uh, Polish, uh, Czech, Slovakian and Hungarian colleagues uh, are uh, really similar in terms of our historical path and uh, in terms of our understanding of uh, how things are uh, going on. Of course, uh, if you are visiting uh, Budapest, Prague, Warsaw, or Bratislava, uh, we are proud uh, Hungarian, Polish, and Czech and Slovak nationals. <coughs> but uh, if we are beyond our uh, borders, uh, we have that kind of, uh, let's call it Visagrad, uh, identity. But uh, the problem is, uh, even if we think, I mean, even if we uh, obviously believe in that kind of common identity, uh, the public awareness of uh, the visegrad band is not as strong as uh, we would like it uh, to be i mean uh, still uh, the public knowledge about uh, how visegrad is working uh, can be can be much better and uh, that's the reason why we decided to do something uh, like textbook which can help students to understand uh, on the one hand the historical uh, progress and the historical uh, part of uh, establishing such regional cooperation, and uh, and those uh, actual policy issues, which uh, can be considered uh, as the most important ones uh, in the in the given year. Uh, the book has been published in 2018 on the occasion of the uh, ongoing Hungarian uh, V4 presidency. We Group uh, is working on the basis of uh, rotational presidency programs, and each year, uh, one of the four countries is responsible to managing uh, that kind of operational uh, task of uh, of intergovernmental meetings. And in 2018, Hungary was uh, responsible for it, and that was the occasion of the of the date of of the publishing uh, of the of the book. And uh, obviously, that means uh, some of the chapters uh, shall be updated regularly. I mean, of course, in 2018, uh, interconnectors in terms of uh, energy policies or the recent turmoil uh, in terms of NATO negotiations are important next year. Other things uh, will be important. That's the <clears throat> everyday uh, life, and that, that's the natural situation of how uh, policy uh, thinking evolves. Uh, but the first part of the book which focuses on on uh, the historical process of of the regime change and the end of uh, communist era uh, in the central european region can serve uh, as something uh, tangible and long lasting uh, tool for students to to know something about about the uh, visegrad region that's why uh, i deeply believe that uh, this kind of uh, books can be important uh, for uh, primarily for for students uh because uh, everything starts uh, in in the universities and and in in higher education if you'd like to uh keep uh, the topic relevant but uh, it also can be useful for uh think tankers decision makers and and all of those uh, personnel who would like to understand what are the most important uh, issues and how Wishagrad, uh works in the, in the on daily basis if they check uh, the second part of the book and and, uh, like to focus on the uh, policy uh, issues. And, uh, yeah, uh, it's my uh, really uh, important, but uh, nonetheless, uh, I'm really happy uh, obligation. I'm happy to to do that, uh, to uh, say thank you uh, for the International Visegrad Fund to support uh, that initiative, as well as uh, our uh, international partners the Kazimir Puleski Foundation from Poland, uh, the Slovak Foreign Policy Association uh, from Slovakia, as well as the European uh, Prague from the Czech Republic to to help us to implement uh, this uh, book project. And to be honest, uh, it's uh, our final part uh, of uh, our roadshow, what we started uh, one year ago uh, at the V4 Capitals to promote uh, the book project, and uh, it's uh, one of our last... uh, stations uh, to talk about uh, uh, that uh, initiative. So uh, thank you very much again uh, for, for the Heritage Foundation to have us here. And uh, I would like to uh, pass the floor to our uh, distinguished guests. Uh, the format of the discussion, uh, if you all agree, uh, would be uh, to ask every uh, speaker, starting uh, from left to right, uh, with the uh, ambassadors and my fellow uh, researcher colleagues, to say some introductory remarks about the Visegrad Cooperation in five uh, minutes. And after the first round, I'd like to pose some uh, questions uh, to you. So first of all, I'd like to ask uh, Laszlo Sabo to start.
4: Welcome, everyone. It's great to have a discussion about this very important geopolitical unity. Uh, Actually, the Visegrad uh, Cooperation started in the 14th century, so quite a while ago, when the Czech, Polish, and Hungarian kings, kings uh, started to conspire against the Habsburgs. It was not successful, but, uh, <laughs> but that was the kickoff. And uh, still try. we are still trying, yeah. <laughs> uh, later on, when it was really revitalized and organized, uh, that, was, that was before the EU accession in the early 2000s, when it really became a very fruitful and productive cooperation to prepare for the accession of the – to the European Union. Um, after the accession, somehow it became a little bit light but uh, a few years ago, probably in 2014, 2015, when the migration crisis uh, hit uh, Southeast Europe. This was the time, again, when this uh, unity was reconfirmed. And uh, right now, I believe, it's considered to be one of the most important, if not the most important, geopolitical associations. Uh, The the role of of, uh, the V4 has been upgraded in the eyes of the U.S. foreign politics as well, uh, with the entrance of Wes Mitchell, who is a very good, uh, uh, I, I would say a, a probably one of the most knowledgeable people about this uh, this region and the history of this region, uh, is uh, entered as as a as an assistant secretary of state uh, uh, in the in the autumn in the fall of 2017. Unfortunately, he's gone, uh, but but he had a very active one and a half years in this position. And uh, clearly, his leadership and the book he wrote a few months before uh, he entered to this role, uh, "Unquiet Frontiers," I believe this was the title. Uh, this really set the tone—a new tone uh, of the U.S. Uh, politics to Central and Eastern Europe. Quite clearly, the the Russian uh, proximity of, of of these four countries, and the fact that uh, that these four countries can play. Uh, maybe a, a buffer role uh, from from or f- for Russian influence uh, that g- gives a, an additional level of of uh, of importance to this uh, cooperation, especially in light that all these countries are NATO members, so they are allies, uh, they are friends uh, to the US, and quite clearly they were a little bit le- neglected uh, in the few years, at least two cycles before so so i think this uh, reevaluation of of what's going on has helped uh, quite a lot uh, also for us to refine uh, this unity and also our relationship to the us has clearly been upgraded um if you look at the the highest level meetings uh, that have been happening in the last uh, few weeks or months uh, this is a clear uh, clear presentation uh, i believe uh, President Trump's first international trip uh, to Europe uh, went to Warsaw, and since then he met uh, on bilateral meetings all the, all the leaders of these countries. Um, uh, my prime minister was in town last Monday. Uh, that was also a very fruitful meeting. Uh, we can talk about it later on. And, uh, and if you look at the, the agreements and the, and the trade and the political uh, dialogue uh, between these countries and the U.S. now, is clearly uh, – I, I think it's better than ever. So, so I think there's a lot to talk about, but I will probably uh, to give my word to, to my esteemed colleague from the Czech Republic.
0: Okay, uh, thank you. I will try to be very, very, very short to give us a lot of time for the discussion, but basically Visegrad in the United States is one of the tools uh, to be used in three areas. I think each of our countries here in the United States have the problem of the visibility. Uh, have the problem of the branding and have the problem of knowing its own limitations. What I mean by visibility, we in the Center Europe are obsessed with Center Europe, so we think everybody knows about our existence. <laughs> Wrong. Most of the people never heard about our existence. Uh, at least 10% whom I meet as a Czech ambassador consider me ambassador of Chechnya anyway. Uh, so, So you really have to fight for your own visibility as such, which uh, is very much connected with our branding. I think none of us calls ourselves Eastern Europe, but if we are visible at all, we are usually somebody from the Eastern Europe. Now, we usually, uh, we usually uh, on the Czech side uh, have the argument that if the Vienna in Austria is in the West, and we are West of the Vienna, it's relatively hard to be East. Uh, And it uh, shows us the classical problem of the branding, that there is a difference between the geopolitical map and the mental map uh, of the people, Uh, that people remember you as somebody which which is not exactly who you are or what your place on the map dictates you. So each of us must try to be visible and sometimes it is better to be visible as a group as the area because uh, different american administrations like not to deal with entities too small and quite often you can hear no not that often but if you force them you can hear the frank uh, the frank expression how much visible we really are Uh, I will remember how once in the White House they told me that the Czech Republic is too small to be noticed and absolutely without problem to be on the agenda. So basically you must be big enough or you must be troublesome enough. Look at Iraq and Afghanistan. Before 9-11 it was the question of five specialists. Nobody cared. Just the trouble suddenly brings you to the attention obviously we don't want to be brought into the attention as <laughs> that type of the subject so we will be stuck with our uh, with uh, our limits which is the third part we must be aware that we will probably never be hopefully the uh, the big focus of the major american us policy and each of us must try to promote his own branding, that there is a certain difference between Eastern and Central Europe, which we can discuss what it really is, and uh, that there is, each of us probably tries to have some special focus, special subject, something what is American topic interesting for Americans, which is associated with us, on on which we ride like on the shiny horse to the attention of uh, whatever American uh, administration uh, Visegrad, we, we, we see as a tool to be more visible. Uh, Visegrad is much more visible in Europe, because it's a very functional tool in the fight of the next 20 years, which will be the main fight in Europe. And the fight is, what European Union are we really building? Is it the United States of Europe, or is it the <laughs> economic zone of the nation-built states? because these two concepts are still competing and it's probably the toughest fight for the Europe uh, for the future. Here in the United States, uh, Visegrad for us is one of the tools to make us more visible for American administration. With that, I will pass, <laughs> pass uh, the talk further on, and I will just quote the spokesman of the State Department when, when he was asked, why Secretary Pompeo is going to Bratislava recently. And the response was, because we haven't been there for 20 years, and we counted, we visited Paris at the same time 57 times. Thank you.
5: Thank you, uh, Ambassador, for – for uh, putting me on spot. I mean, um, <laughs> let, let me start by saying I want to thank uh, the Antle Center and the Heritage for uh, for this effort to make uh, V4 sexy again in Washington. I think that's, uh, that's one of the reasons we are sitting um, in this room. Um, I think, but, but still, I would like to deliver some concrete elements to make sure that um, from our perspective, um, I'm trying to make sure that there's coherence between between the U.S. foreign policy and the V4 policy. Um, I'll, I'll give you a NATO angle to it if you if you don't don't mind. Uh, that's 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 what I'm doing right now. But I but I want to make sure that you all understand in this room that if you zoom out, the V4, the Visegrad Group, is the not only grouping that we have in Europe or in the region that matters uh, from our capital perspective. Um, The the first one that uh, is especially dear to to NATO hearts is the so-called B9, so the Bucharest 9 format, which basically was established after the NATO summit in Wales when the whole process of the long-term adaptation started. So the eastern NATO flank coming from Estonia up to uh, Bulgaria um, is one of the formats where V4 is playing a constructive role. Uh, we can still play a bigger role in that format, but I'm just flagging it up. Second element of a thing important in, in DC right now is the Free Seas Initiative, which is mostly about critical infrastructure, interconnectors, links, transportation. But I want to make sure that you understand that apart from V4, we have different tools. Um, to make sure that there's coherence between what we do on the national regional level and the relationship with the United States. From NATO angle, I have five points for you, uh, which I believe are crucial to determine how V4 will be functioning and how coherent V4, the Visegrad Group, will be with the um, U.S. foreign um, priorities um, in the next few years to come. First one, um, surprise, surprise, burden-sharing. Um, but I think the talk about 2 percent um, GDP spent on defense is something that we hear that we hear too much, to, on, to be honest, in NATO, um, but we hear it for a good reason. I think we – all countries, um, also from the V4, agreed back in 2014 that we are going to spend 2 percent GDP on defense. That's our obligation. We treated it as our obligation. I think we need to deliver on that. Before 2024, as agreed, um, a big priority for the region. But it's not only about spending money; it's how you spend it. So, uh, the capabilities that we are going to buy, and I think I, I see I see the, the announcements coming from all V4 countries that there are some big acquisition programs ahead, um, linking the V4 culture obviously to also to the United States. Um, there are some big um, big announcements were made by Poland, but I think. Slovak colleague can also tell you about the big announcement coming from the Slovak side. I think there is something that we need to, to make sure is coherent in a way, what kind of capabilities for what kind of missions we are going to uh, acquire the next few years. Finally, contributions um, to how V4 countries are contributing to the missions and operations of NATO. And I'm not talking about only Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, I consider um, the enhanced forward presence, so the presence of NATO allies on the eastern flank as a mission operation. So, so basically, what I'm, what I'm saying is how we ourselves from the region are contributing to enhancement of NATO Eastern flank is going to be crucial to make sure that the visibility, as Ambassador mentioned, of V4 is also high in, in Brussels and in NATO. <clears throat> Second point um, on NATO perspective: it's Russia. Um, I think a topic which is not going to disappear from NATO agenda in the next few years or decades. Who knows? Um, a big topic, which is going to make uh, make our life more difficult, is the final decision that we have to take in NATO on what we are going to do, how we are going to reply to the INF um, Russian INF violation, what kind of capabilities, and how we are going to deploy. Obviously, I'm mentioning it because those capabilities are are currently, um, I mean, no single ally uh, possesses them. But obviously, the United States um, have already announced that they are going to. Uh, Potentially, in the, uh, not potentially, they're going to uh, make sure that those capabilities are available for them. I think that's a topic that we need to make sure there's coherence between the B 4 countries, um, how we want to um, to make the long-term adaptation of NATO and, and um, long-term effectiveness of deterrence and defense, um, how, how we want to make it work in practical terms. Third point, um, I'm drawing your attention to a topic which is crucial right now, cyber. Um, where where I believe the the V4 cooperation is something that we can do. Um, And I'm going to just flag up two issues that I believe are going to be um, to determine the future of discussion uh, about cyber and NATO. One of is offensive capabilities. And and I'm not saying NATO offensive capabilities, but allied offensive capabilities which are delivered on behalf of NATO. Um, Second, attribution, collective attribution. um, Something that we are still lacking on NATO level, but without that, we cannot move forward. Um, third element, big topic: China um, and how NATO can contribute to a larger discussion about China, um, China's military, but also political posture. I see at least two elements that we we need to assess before the end of the year in, in NATO. Uh, first is. Um, what, what impact Chinese investment are having on our critical infrastructure, be, be it um, port infrastructure, be it airport infrastructure, be it road infrastructure, um, be it telecommunications infrastructure. Um, second element, how it's going to impact our military mobility, so how the forces um, can move within Europe, but also um, through Atlantic um, to Europe. I, I think w- when, I'm, when I'm saying that, I, I see at least one element that we need to do better in terms of not the region, but NATO as a whole, um, it's back in 2016 at the Warsaw Summit, we agreed to have something like a resilience pledge. So a pledge to enhance our own resilience. One of the points that we are, we are making in that pledge is that we are going to diminish the acquisition of arms coming from, uh, from Russia. Um I, I think this display is, needs to be boosted, uh, honestly, and that's my personal uh, feeling right now, to make sure that we are not only talking about Russia, but we are also talking about China in the context of what kind of capabilities, military or technological, we are going to acquire. Um, fifth point, and I'm going to end up with that, is energy security. NATO obviously is not an energy security organization uh, and will not be an energy security organization. Uh, but I think for – to make sure that, that – we are being effective in our deterrence and defense, but also our ability to deploy forces. We need to make sure that the the level of our coherence on energy security is is boosted. I'm not going to mention the project that is very famous in in DC, but obviously we are very critical of that project. I think unity on on making sure that this project is going to um, be stopped or at least um, or at least slowed down is something that we need to work on. Um, but I have a positive agenda that we can do in NATO. I'm flagging up one issue that is – was brought to my interest recently is that we have a a pipeline, NATO pipeline, NATO oil pipeline, built back in the Cold War times, which which is called the Central European Pipeline System, uh, which is interesting because it's – it ends up in the middle of Germany, um, which basically means it ends up at the old um, Federal Republic of Germany border with DDR's German – public, which basically means that Sakur when he wants to deploy forces um, to the to the theater um, in Eastern Europe, the pipeline is not at his disposal. Something to chew on uh, for all of us. My last point is something that I think we need to be more vocal about is open door policy. Um, so the door are staying open for in NATO and the EU for countries which should be joining us um, sooner than later. I'm talking about specifically to talking about Ukraine and Georgia. And I stop here, uh, and and Dushan, you're going to tell us how to make v 4 even more sexy.
6: Yes. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Dominic, uh, for putting a lot of pressure on me. Uh, I would like to start by
5: uh, thanking
6: uh, Antalyoshev Nori Center and the Heritage Foundation for for hosting this event. It's very interesting to speak about. I don't. I don't think we have. Uh, enough events uh, about the V4 in in, uh, in Central or Western Europe. And, and it's also a privilege for me to speak uh, about this topic uh, during the Slovak presidency of the V4. But uh, also I would like to stress out that even though I cannot hide my affiliation, whatever I'm going to say will not necessarily be in line with uh, the governmental... Uh, Opinion or, or or governmental statements on this, uh, maybe sometimes it will be even contradictory. So um, uh, this is just my my own personal view on the matter. Um, it's it's very interesting, and, and Veronica made a, made an excellent point about borders and the V four. And I would like to stress the importance of the V four, and and then back then V three because Czechoslovakia was still one state. Um, I took a, I took a run this morning because I was jet lagged and I woke up at 3 a.m., and uh, so I went to the U.S. Marine Corps Memorial. And when you when you cross the Arlington Memorial Bridge, I mean, you suddenly enter a different state, right? You're suddenly in Virginia. Just imagine that there would be a, like a full battalion of troops guarding the bridge and wouldn't let you go, even though you have family there, you have friends there, and you can see them. You no, know, they wouldn't let you go so i think this is this 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 is something that should be reminded a lot although um it is very difficult because uh, the the V4 or the V3 goal the Visegrad cooperation goal was to join the the free nations join the eu join nato and we accomplished that in 2004 which is all all four nations are now in nato and the eu so that makes everything else like seems like a failure because the the bar was set so high on this cooperation, that we achieved these huge goals, that any kind of defense cooperation that was lower than that, which everything will be lower than that, was seen as a failure. And I was one of the people who was always criticizing the the V4 for not having enough cooperation on defense and, and security. So I'll try to be more, more optimistic about this. So... Um, so we have a we have we have several bodies of cooperation, and I will talk about the the first one, which I think is the most important is the long term vision uh, on cooperation that was signed in two thousand and fourteen uh, It was a robust and very ambitious document, uh, but it set out some sort of uh, framework for cooperation. Then I will talk about shortly about the modernization plans uh from the v four countries and then I will move to the, towards the topics that we have in common that we can actually build on from the modernization uh, so the operational tactical technical point of view so the long-term vision uh, is actually setting something that is very very difficult to achieve which is the harmonization of defense planning process of all four countries uh, i think that whoever was ever involved in defense planning process would say that this is almost impossible but we, we should at least try to have some sort of open debate about this these events and i know that during the slovak presidency we had a lot of meetings with political directors We had meetings of national armaments directors of the V4 countries, uh, ministerials on the the level of of Ministry of Defense. So the debate is going on. But I think that the Visegrad group is now moving from from cooperation to contribution, rather. So as Dominic mentioned, the the, the EFP, I consider being one of the greatest examples of us cooperating somewhere else, not within our midst, but somewhere else. The other one is PESCO. Uh, the public uh the, the sorry the, the permanent uh, European structure cooperation. Uh I think it's also uh it's it's a great platform for cooperation. Uh so the long term vision may be ambitious, but maybe we could look at it, maybe take uh assessment of it. It was signed five years ago. Maybe it's time to, to make assessment. The modernization plans, um the, the Hungarians are looking now at modernizing helicopters, training planes, uh Vehicles, anti tank missiles, so there's a lot of topics to be covered. In the Czech Republic, the, the main topics are short-range air defense, uh, multi-role helicopters are now in place as well. Poland, air defense as well, long-range artillery, cyber, uh, and naval vessels. Uh, this is actually the only country that actually can have uh, naval vessels. And, uh, and uh, in Slovakia, the, the greatest topics at this point are the, the military vehicles, 8x8s, 4x4s, f sixteen, uh, the largest procurement modernization project in, in Slovakia history, and uh, the 3D radars. So um, if you look at all these modernization projects, the, the one thing that they have all in common is air defense. And I think this will be, this is very technical, I know, but I think this will be the the one topic that we can actually focus on in the future because there's also, uh, there's a a study due in October 2019 on air defense, uh, in the V4 air defense cooperation, and there's a pledge of all V4 countries to replace their air defense by 2030. So this, I think, is is the greatest uh, point of cooperation. And of course... Uh, very important is education and training, and I think education and training and exercise is the the lowest common denominator nom- that we can all agree that we need to cooperate more on this. So, uh, and I said I will be more optimistic. So I would say I wouldn't say that the the, the cooperation is doomed. as I used to say because now when I work in I've, I've been working at the ministry for the past you know six seven months. So now I understand that there is a room, uh, there is opportunity to actually do it. Uh, there are some difficulties, of course there was always bumps in the road uh you have uh, different elections you have new prime ministers new presidents almost every 2 or 3 years in the visegrad group the presidency lasts only for one year so there are there are difficulties but but as i mentioned there are um, actually things that that uh, when we have sober expectations and when we actually move uh, to contribution rather than to cooperation i think there's there's a way to uh, to do this right so uh Thank you, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the debate.
3: Thank you very much for uh, all of you. Uh, as an academic, it's really hard uh, for me to behave like a journalist, but uh, being a moderator is quite challenging, and I, I would like to pretend uh, to do so. So I would like to ask you a bit provocative question, and uh, it's kind of elephant in the room that uh, the Trump administration and the uh, V4 leaders share some uh, common ideas on the importance of uh, national sovereignty and the border protection, uh, especially in the case of uh, immigration. Uh, we, we all know that. And uh, it's kind of not surprising that uh, Donald Trump uh, visited Warsaw very uh, early after his uh, inauguration in 2016, but uh, this year in May, uh, after, uh, after uh, Mr. Pellegrini and uh, Prime Minister Babish, also Viktor Orban, our Prime Minister, uh, visited the uh, White House and uh, both of uh, the parties, I mean the American president as well as the V4 leaders uh, separately considered those uh, meetings as uh, tremendously uh, successful ones. Uh, so my question would be for all of, all of you, How do you see it? Uh, Is there a new uh, chapter in terms of our uh, bilateral uh, relations? Please, of course, refer to your own uh, prime uh, ministers and the country's situation. And how do you see the potentials uh, in American-Hungarian, American-Czech, American-Slovakian and American-Polish relations?
4: Well, if you allow me, I would still like to go back to visibility a little bit because because uh, obviously that's an important uh, question from U.S. Uh, foreign politics and economic politics uh, uh, perspective. Uh, one piece of info- important information that the Visegrad four countries combined are the 15th largest economy in the world, okay? And since we, ha- we have very strong uh, historic uh, uh, and uh, and uh, social similarities uh, between each other. Many major companies in Europe are considering us as, as one unity. Uh, also, it's worthwhile to consider that when you compare the trade between France and Germany, and the Visegrad four in Germany, the Visegrad four has seventy-five percent higher trade with Germany than France. So. As a, if, if we can consider the V4 as an economic unit, it's also it's one of the most powerful uh, uh, regions of, of Europe. Uh, if you also look at the growth rate of these four countries, uh, these four countries outgrew the average of the European Union at least twofold in the last five years, and at least threefold they outgrew the Eurozone. Uh, I know that with Slovakia that's a challenging comparison, but, but – Still, uh, I believe the power uh, and the growth rate of, of this uh, region clearly attracts attention. Uh, if you look at U.S. investment in all those four countries, that's really uh, amazing. And, uh, and I, I believe this relation is clearly getting uh, on a higher and higher level with the United States. When it comes to uh, Hungary's uh, relation to bilateral relations to the U.S., uh, we can clearly see an upgrade in our political relations. Uh, not only uh, because uh, Prime Minister Orbán was the first uh, European leader to uh, support uh, candidate Trump uh, during the election campaign uh, six months before, before the elections took place in the United States, the presidential elections, uh, but also our view on many, many major political issues. When it comes to uh, to illegal migration, when it comes to to Russia, when it comes to China, when it comes to this uh, pipeline project, you didn't want to want to mention Nord Stream Two. We are mentioning this very loudly everywhere because we believe that's a big, big risk for for Europe and Europe's energy security. And uh, and uh, I believe, uh, I believe these upgraded uh, relationships are, are, are showing uh, in our economic, political, and defense uh, uh, s- platforms or, or, or fields as well. Uh, we agreed on the text of our defense cooperation agreement in February with Secretary Pompeo, and, uh, and it was signed um, a couple of months ago here in Washington, D.C., by the foreign minister and the deputy uh, state secretary. Uh, we hope that the Hungarian Parliament will approve it, uh, ratify it very quickly before the end of the of the uh, of the congressional season, and uh, and and practically this will gives us uh, an improved level of of defense when it comes to military mobility. Uh, you mentioned uh, purchases on, on arms. Uh, we started pretty low uh, when it comes to spending uh, a proportion of our gdp we had like 1.1 percent uh, a few years ago now we are at 1.4 getting to 1.5 by the end of this year just this year we are increasing our spending uh, by almost 30 percent so there is a clear uh, desire to really get up to speed and modernize our infrastructure uh, most of it has been based on Soviet uh, machinery and technology, so obviously it 's a very painful and long process to get rid of all these uh, all these uh, obsolete uh, technologies uh, and uh, interoperability of those uh, military uh, projects and and uh, equipment is is extremely crucial for us. We are a small country uh, the Visegrad force are relatively small, uh, so that 's why unity. And uh, strengthening the European uh, defence in in general is is a major major uh, priority for us. So, I think this is about it.
0: Okay. So the Czechs are satisfied with the current relation because uh, we inherited a situation where for more than eight years we didn't have anybody in the Oval Office. Uh, it dramatically changed uh, partly through to Wes Mitchell, but but also with the assessment of this administration that our area really matters again it's connected with the lng it's connected with uh, with uh, their overall strategic approach to europe finally we got back on the map and the hell of the gates opened again (laughs) Uh, which uh, for us means that for example my previous foreign minister in four years was to Washington once. My current minister will be here this year six times in just one year. That, that's basically the, the level of speed from zero to over maximum, because you must use the time when the gates are still open. Uh, It it, uh, also reflects a little bit change of the situation of our countries economically because this administration understands that, again, we became practically sent to Europe, rich Western region. If most of my predecessors had the main task to lure American investors to the Czech Republic, my main task is to have a look what we can buy in the United States and what we can invest here, we created more than 7,000 jobs here uh, in the recent years. And uh, with the lowest level of unemployment in the EU, we are not so keen to bring more and more investors because the result will be they will open more and more factories. And for these factories, we will need more and more Ukrainians. Uh, and by now, Ukrainians already became the highest uh, or the biggest national uh, minority out of 14 in the Czech Republic for the first time in our history. We all the time believe that Slovaks are predestined after more than 70 years of being uh, with us uh, in the same state to be our main national minority. Not anymore. Economy changed uh, all. As for for the defense cooperation, uh, uh, the Czech Republic uh, currently has uh, the Overall trade with the United States... Basically stable around seven billion US dollars a year, where we sell here close to seventy percent of our gun production. Uh, we own twenty-five uh, percent of your ultralight US market. Uh, we sell here more than half of all, all the explosives. Uh, we make my beloved example is uh, that Czech army has twenty-three thousand soldiers, which means twenty-three thousand rifles. Uh, One of our uh, gun companies sells here every month 30,000 rifles, which is one-third more than the complete Czech army, month after month after month. It it, uh, gives you the idea why the U.S. is our main uh, non-EU market uh, on the planet. So uh, all all of this is realized on the American side. Americans are back in uh, in our area. We welcome it, and we must find uh, some long-time tools how to keep the American interest. What we Czechs do is that we are really trying not only brand ourselves as the center of Europe to be visible, as we all are, but also to find the topics interesting for Americans which is, for example, why we serve as a protective power for the United States in Syria, because we are the only one who can do it there currently on the spot, and we believe this is one of the subjects which will stay with us even after the gates of hell close again.
5: Well, an impressive list for both ambassadors. Please do excuse me. I don't have such a good knowledge of bilateral Polish-U.S. Uh, relationship. I, I, I think my ambassador would be more suitable to deliver that. Let me give you – I mean, I was trying to write down the things that come to my head when I think Polish-U.S. relationship, but I, I, let me give you three points. First, I, I think though this relationship has always been very, very solid and very good in terms of uh, security cooperation, first of all. It's, it's not that it started after 2016. Um, the, the magnitude obviously changed after 2014 because of the Russian aggression against, uh, against uh, Ukraine and how the security environment changed around Poland. Um, that was an important factor. Um, but if we go back, like projects such as missile defense site in Rezykovo, um started back in 2009. Um, so, so I think there is there is a bilateral U.S. Uh, Polish defense cooperation which which um, dates um, or predates uh, President Donald Trump. Having said so, obviously I, I need to recognize two facts: that that obviously after uh, President Trump came to power, those contacts were uh, they became super regular. And my embassy probably knows all the details. Balanced, and President Duda is coming to town within the next few weeks. Um, the Procurement of American um, <clears throat> highly advanced systems speeded up in the last two years. Be it Patriot system, Be it HIMARS, uh, we are talking about F-35, um, which is an interesting concept. Um, uh, also for me to, to understand how it fits into the Polish um, larger defense. Um, possi- I mean defense investment possibilities. Having said so, there is a second element to it, and obviously that's energy security. Um, LNG port built in Svinovice with LNG gas flow coming from the U.S. We don't have any problems with mentioning Ambassador Nord Stream 2. We, we, just, we, just, we just need to understand how we can fight against this project in a constructive way. Mentioning Nord Stream 2, it's not going to stop Nord Stream 2. Uh, it's how we are mentioning in, in this town and how we deal with that in in, in Brussels make, makes potentially a a, a a stop to the project. Obviously, we hear about the potential U.S. sanctions, um, how they are going to be introduced is going to matter also, and how and if they are going to be introduced matters uh, for the Nord Stream 2 project as well. Finally, um, on other topics which come to my mind, obviously this year for the first time uh, together with the United States, Poland hosted a, a huge conference on the Middle East, um, so-called Warsaw Process or Warsaw Summit, which started to basically <clears throat> address the topics of the security in the Middle East. Um, having said so, dear, uh, I, I, I think this cooperation looks really good. Um, if you ask me if it's going to flourish, I think it's it's going to, to flourish in the next few years. Um and obviously there there are bilateral discussion about enhancing the US military presence in Poland. And on, on a final note, on, on a on an interesting note, back in two thousand and twelve there were twelve US soldiers in Poland. And um, I, and I heard it from one of the um, officials back um, back then in, 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 in D.C. He told me the parades to welcome those those 12 U.S. soldiers in Poland lasted for three hours. That was a long, long speech uh, and, and a, a huge parade. Now we have, in Poland, in different forms, be it on a bilateral basis or within NATO, over 4,000 U.S. soldiers. If somebody asks me in Europe, do you still believe the United States can deliver, I always give them that example. I always try to explain to them this is a a huge change. This is not only a quantity change, it's a quality change uh, in, in in our region. And this is why when somebody tells me that the United States are intellectually withdrawing from NATO, I'm always giving them that example. If you're going to tell me that, that Windows – five years, we are seeing less U.S. engagement in Europe. I'm going to tell you we are seeing more U.S. engagement and contribution to European security. Having said so, Dursun? Thank you. So how is the Ford Trump coming along? It's, it's,
6: great. it's great.
5: It's going to be great.
6: <laughs> yes, of course. So, yeah, um, just uh, just really quickly on the on the topic about the relations and the V4 U.S. relations and uh, – i think what peter said that uh the all the all the bilateral meetings were a tremendous success because when you ask president trump about everything that he has been involved in he will say that it's, it was a tremendous success and it was actually saw a, uh, a witness as a success in in our region as well and given the fact that i am sort of responsible and i have the us defense cooperation uh, with slovakia in my portfolio for our modernization department and my very good friend from the slovak embassy uh, is here in the room, uh, so I'm sort of biased just to say that yes, the relationship I think is is very strong, and we just uh, recently saw a visit of Prime Minister uh, Pellegrini here in the White House, uh, which was uh, I think uh, very successful. Unfortunately, the the whole meeting and uh, the press conference was was. Overwhelmed by other issues uh, as, as they as they progress, usually. So, I think that in terms of in terms of defense cooperation and economical cooperation, uh, the United States is is very important ally outside of the of the EU. One of the one of the I think most important uh, outside of the of the EU. And uh, the the most things uh, that were discussed during the bilateral meetings, as far as I know, were also related to business. Uh, so, so there's also the this 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 sort of relationship but when it comes to the V4 i think the it was mentioned uh by by the previous speakers on the the V4 plus model and i think this is something that is also very successful for the V4 as, as such uh, this V4 plus Germany V4 plus plus Japan uh and other countries so i think the V4 plus the united states uh i think has also some sort of uh tangible tangible results so if we combine the the strong bilateral relations uh and with the with the V4 Relationship with the United States as a whole, I think that uh, that it it can actually it, it, it actually flourish because I think that when when Donald Trump was elected, uh, all v four leaders tried to use this sort of vagueness of of U.S. foreign policy. There was there was very very little known at the time of, of the election and and the, even the inauguration apart from some of the key people that was they were joining uh, the 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 State Department, including Vice Mitchell. Uh, it was very uh, very little known about what will be the the, the new administration approach uh, towards the region, towards Europe, and so on. So I think that uh, it was a lot of discussion in the V4 countries and in the capitals to use this opportunity, you know, to reach out to the United States to make the make the relationship even stronger, even even better. Uh, because I don't think that the, the Trump administration has some rigid view of the. Of the of, of the U.S. Uh, foreign policy, so I think it, it was a su- success uh, on our part, uh, all four countries, to to use this window of opportunity to make this this relationship stronger.
3: Thank you very much. Uh, my second round of c- uh, question uh, would be uh, revolving around what uh, you've just said, uh, Mr. Ambassador, uh, in the very beginning that uh, the Visegrad region can be interesting uh, because of its size or because of uh, being troublesome or not and uh, i've just uh, had the idea that uh, define what is uh, called to be troublesome depends on the on the us national security strategy and uh, there is uh, some kind of tangible shift in terms of that i mean uh, the new uh, strategy during the trump administration uses uh, the old uh, language of the Cold uh, War uh, using terms like geopolitics and uh, emerging rivalry of of great powers. And uh, if you look at the map, we can see that uh, the Central European region, uh, again, uh, can be important in that sense, especially if uh, you look at the situation in the Western Balkans, which is uh, a number one priority in terms of Hungarian foreign policy and uh, its uh, Euro-Atlantic integration, but you also can see uh, some uh, great power actors, uh, such as uh, China, or, uh, or, or, or the Russians, or uh, even uh, some uh, important actors within the European uh, Union, such as uh, Germany, to have their own uh, national interest uh, there. And my question would be, uh, how do you see, uh, can we find the synergies uh, if we look at the American perspective? in terms of those uh, geopolitical uh, rivalry in the region, because uh, what we need, uh, from my perspective, is uh, just the same connectivity, uh, stable and, uh, uh, of course, cheap uh, energy uh, resources. But to achieve that goal, uh, it's really important to uh, find a way to be cost-effective and uh, economically uh, reasonable. So how do you see what uh, can... The U.S. uh, offered the region, and uh, I specifically would like to mention these uh, TSI project and the TSI fund and uh, the potentials in uh, investment uh, coming from American uh, private sector, uh, as well as uh, the other side activity. What can the V4 countries public administration do in order to uh, strengthen those uh, relations?
4: Well, obviously, this was a question that could take like three days to answer, but uh, let me let me focus my answer on, on energy security, maybe, because this is probably one of the key uh, priorities, uh, not only in our bilateral relations, but I think it's a very important uh, U.S. policy when it comes to Europe, and, and there's a clear divide in Europe when, when it comes to energy security and how certain countries look at uh, Nord Stream 2, for example – or or alternative uh, sources and routes, uh, opportunities for uh, for Southeast Europe and Central Europe. Hungary is still using the old Soviet infrastructure. Uh, No European or outside of European uh, country has been able to help us in in, uh, getting rid of this dependency from Russia. Eighty-five percent of our gas is still coming from Russia through Ukraine. Uh, This is obviously not the safest route and source uh, you can imagine these days. Um, uh, it was almost amusing for me to to read some articles in the last few uh, weeks uh, that Hungary is refusing diversification. Basically, Hungary has done its homework. We have built all the pipelines to all our neighbors. We can practically send gas to all our neighbors, and we can receive gas from all our neighbors, so accusing us of not uh, really fighting for uh, diversification – that's uh, very uneducated or politically driven. Uh, also when, when Russia closed the tap uh, towards Ukraine, it was Slovakia and Hungary who provided gas back to Ukraine. Um, Hungary in the last four years provided uh, 9 billion cubic meters of gas to Ukraine. That's, that's about the same as our annual consumption in Hungary. So you can imagine the volumes. Uh, Interconnectivity, that's why it's very, very important. Serbia is actually dependent on us mostly when it comes to gas. Uh, But we are a landlocked country, and until you can email gas, uh, we need our neighbors to deliver gas to us. Uh, Right now, the most uh, viable options to deliver gas to Hungary from non-Russian sources (coughs) is basically (coughs) Croatia. If and once the Croatian uh, LNG terminal will be completed, that was promised to the European Union, I don't know, 15 years ago uh, by our Croatian friends, uh, and major funding has been provided by the European Union to complete uh, this pipeline and the LNG terminal. Once this will be done, approximately 8-10% of our needs can be supplied from that LNG terminal. That can be, of course, uh, Norwegian gas or or. I don't know, Saudi gas or American gas. So so we are open for business there once the Croatian part has been completed. The other even more important opportunity for us is the Black Sea exploration of the Neptune offshore gas fields. Uh, that project is in the hands of ÖMV, the Austrian, or some people say Austrian-Russian uh, company, and uh, the other is ExxonMobil. ExxonMobil, obviously, a key player In the region. And uh, and this was on the table when Prime Minister Orban and President Trump was talking about how the U.S. can help in diversification. Uh, If we can convince or help the Croatians and the Romanians uh, to complete their part of the infrastructure, then our dependency from Russia will be uh, seized. Once uh, the Nord Stream 2 will be built, however, this will create a very strange dynamic on the market, We believe uh, Russia delivers enough gas already to Europe. Uh, Having another pipeline will do one thing only, drop the Russian price even further down, making it even easier for all Europe to get Russian gas. And if you imagine or if you think about the fact that the main backbone pipeline in Germany, uh, the full capacity has been booked by Gazprom until 2039, the German Czech interconnectors, the Slovak Czech interconnectors, have been booked by Gazprom until 2039. Also, there's not many more ways uh, you can you can go. When we were supplying Ukraine gas uh, uh, during these challenging past few years, that was also Russian gas. Although many many experts say that uh, the gas molecules are not labeled where it came from, but still. It's Russian gas, okay? So the U.S. has an incredibly, incredibly important role in breaking this dependence from Russia. So, so, so this is our main, main objective when it comes to energy security, and we hope that uh, Secretary Perry uh, will, will be really applying pressure and the United States will apply pressure uh, on all players on the European market that this uh, dependence from Russia will be, will be disappearing.
0: Okay, so I will keep it to the same topic, uh, because it's a good case study how Hungary and the Czech Republic are similar, and at the same time, not at all. (laughs) Uh, The Czech energy mix, we started basically like 100% dependent on, on on the Russian oil and gas. We had two refineries, both tuned to the Russian oil, unable to do anything with basically the Arab oil. Gas was 100%. If you look at the change last year, 93%, and I repeat, 93% of our gas supply came from Rotterdam on the Rotterdam spot prices. Uh, Yes, there was also some Russian gas, which we buy from Rotterdam because it's cheaper than to buy it from Russians directly, which is, by the way, exactly uh, the the effect of Nord Stream 2 probably will will have. Uh, So we see it extremely important that the LNG comes to Europe once you Americans solve two basic questions, connectivity and price. You cannot sell it for double of the price of the Amsterdam, of Rotterdam, and you cannot tell us that you are still looking for the market, which will be the reference market for your price. There is the major European market, and if you get on that market, we just welcome it. Good, because it will be good for us for the much safer supply with no political baggage uh, included, Plus, it will probably influence uh, the prices. As for the oil, almost same development. One of the first things we did after 1989 was that we were preparing ourselves not to be dependent on the Russian oil. So we changed the second refinery to be able to work with with the Arab oil and the uh, the other oils we, we can get again. Uh, we expected that if the Russian pipeline goes dry, that's the oil we will use the other, the other way. What actually happened was that the Russians were constantly in debt to us, so they paid us with the oil, so we exported, re-exported this Russian oil, so we used the West pipeline exactly the opposite way. Uh, but uh, overall, uh, I can say that, that we... Are uh, for the most diversified sources we can imagine. Uh, American energy in Europe will be a huge change and hopefully it will come soon. But there must be connectivity soft, which is not, and the price, which you are really somewhere in the
5: deep forests. Quickly on energy, I I, I think I said at the beginning. Energy is one of the most important fields of cooperation between our region and the U.S., and I think on LNG, we had already made some steps towards good cooperation with the U.S. Our LNG port in Świnoujście has already, as far as I can tell um, and recall, uh, accepted um, LNG coming from the U.S., so the U.S. basically is already exporting LNG gas to um, Poland. My second point is, and because you've mentioned it, Peter, is free season initiative um, – and you said, what can the U.S. do for us? I, um, I, I think we need to start with ourselves, honestly. That's, that's my biggest concern, always. Uh, we, we, we created this pre-season fund to which Poland has already contributed financial resources. I think before the U.S. jumps into and says, well, we are going to contribute with our money, we need to make sure that all countries from the region are contributing with their financial resources to the, uh, to the um, uh, fund. Having said so, I, I really believe that the connectivity elements in the free seas make sense uh, for two reasons. First, it's roads, infrastructure, uh, w- which is crucial for military mobility, something that we do talk a lot in the EU and NATO. Second, telecom. Um, and, and if there is a, a something that we know, so dependence on Russia when it comes to oil, we are also looking at dependence on telecom when it comes to uh, China. Um, and how we are going to address the 5G question in Europe is absolutely essential, because connectivity right now is not only about the, the hard infrastructure – it matters, it's true, uh, we still need it – but it's also about the telecom um, infrastructure, which is something that we didn't do a deep dive yet, and, and we need to uh, also within the free-season industry.
6: Okay, thanks. I'll, I'll address uh... – the other perspective of, of your <coughs> question, uh, because uh, there was a lot lot uh, covered already on energy security, and Dominic also added uh, the the telecommunication uh, cooperation. So I would like to address the geopolitical rivalry. I mean, this was here before, even before Trump, but Trump administration was uh, blunt enough uh, to name it uh, and, and to use the, the call. Cold War nomenclature to actually talk talk about uh, rivalry between these countries because the the Chinese influence, whether be it, you know Africa or be the Western Balkans, has been here uh, for for I would probably say years already. And um, and I mean we still remember the debate about BRICS and the, the, those countries you know having influence uh, over over European uh, European nations. I think that when we talk about geopolitical ever and sort of picking sides uh, between those two huge actors, uh, we should look at national values and also international values because Slovakia cannot act alone as a single <coughs> unitary country that is, you know, not influenced by by its neighborhood. Because Slovakia is member of NATO, most importantly, Slovakia is member of the EU. And when we joined the EU, uh, we, you know, a- a- accepted. Terms and conditions, and this is sort of when you updated your phone or when you doing something, when you are registering something, you always accept the terms and conditions. So we cannot act uh, like we can. We we have to look at our national national values and national interest, of course, but we also have to include. There's no doubt about it. We have to include the the broader sort of uh, uh, values and interests uh, given the region of the V4 or the European Union, and this should be the prism. Uh, that uh, by by which we could lo- we could look at uh, any kind of uh, foreign
3: investment, be it from anywhere. Thank you very much. Uh, now I would like to uh, give the opportunity to the audience to uh, pose some questions uh, to our uh, distinguished uh, speakers. So uh, please uh, feel free uh, to ask about uh, the V4 cooperation and all of the topics that I've mentioned. And, uh, please raise your hand, uh, introduce yourself and, uh, uh,
1: Uh, Thank you. Daniel Coaches again from the Heritage Foundation. I was wondering if you could perhaps um, take a bit of a deeper dive on the 5G issue and sort of how you're viewing Chinese investment um, in your countries as something that you see as a partial opportunity, is it something that you see as a threat. Uh, That would be helpful. Thank you. If I
4: can jump in, Um, there's a huge hypocrisy uh, when it comes to this question. Um, Hungary, for example... uh, has approximately 1.2 percent of the trade between China and the European Union, 1.2 percent. And approximately 90 percent of that is Vodafone and Deutsche Telekom operating from Hungary. So whoever brings up this question either doesn't know the, the data or believes that whatever Hungary or Czech or Slovak or Poland does has anything to do with anything. Uh, It's not us. It's big corporation. And uh, it's really, uh, I think, uh, government influence uh, or political influence on those major companies like Vodafone, like Deutsche Telekom will make a difference. Hungary will not make a difference when it comes to to this. But it's the same type of hypocrisy what we see related to to Nord Stream 2 uh, and Russia. So everyone is fighting for the independence and sovereignty of Ukraine. But when it comes to oil and money, oh, we build a direct pipeline with Russia. Thank you very much. Same story. If you look at the Chinese trade with France, with Germany, with the UK, Italy, this is where you have those, You have to have those questions, not us. Thank you.
0: Okay. Uh, the Czech perspective, we will go more for 5G. We see it as an absolutely critical defense uh, structure uh it's really the question of the future connectivity as my as my as my polish colleague mentioned So we are really trying to be very innovative uh, in the way how to avoid uh, the situation where we let Chinese go too deep into our system. There is a very uh, complicated technical discussion if they can stay somewhere on the periphery and not to go to the core system or not. Uh, many, uh, Many people believe it's virtually impossible to, to close them completely off once you are there. On the other hand, if, if, if you look at, uh, at the market currently, uh, it's Chinese Huawei number one, Chinese Huawei number three. Uh, so whatever you build as the 5G currently will necessarily have Huawei and ZTE components, whatever we do. It needn't be their system, but there will be parts of their production in any way we go. We know that the Chinese are close to eight months ahead of any Western supplier, if we speak of Nokia or Ericsson. Uh, We hear the talk about the American technology going on. At the same time, we see that most of the American companies have their research labs back in China, which we find interesting. Uh, If we compare it with the rhetorics, uh, so, so at the end, we try to be really one of the leaders uh, of uh, the situation. That's why we recently organized a big 5G conference in Prague, where we will find the unified European answer. Because we know that given the situation on the market, 10 million Czechs will not be a match for Chinese. But if we have and we should have the European strategy, what is the place where we let the Chinese go simply because we have to uh, technologically and what should be clearly out of the bounds, it would help everybody and it would also solve the question of the labeling who has more and less Chinese because then we every time end up with saying that most of the Chinese millionaires live in London anyway.
5: On 5G, that's just – it's an interesting element because I think, like, at the beginning of February, nobody knew what 5G is in NATO. When, when I say nobody, I mean, like, really political people. They were like, 5G, what's that? Uh, you have 4G on your phone. Oh, so there's something that we need to talk um, – also in, in this building, why? My point is – and three points on that um, – for our region, it will be really critical to understand how the U.S.-China relationship will develop in the future. Uh, for two reasons: technological elements, um, be it 5G, but also other elements of of, of the rivalry. Second element: there is obviously a Russian factor, which which um, is of interest uh, to at least uh, from our military perspective. Second, and I want to echo what what the Hungarian ambassador said. I, I think it's it's a little bit unfair to make a, to make a point that Central Europe is somehow dependent to a very large extent to uh, uh, Chinese foreign direct investment. I-, I think it's a overstatement. When you look at data, it's not us, uh, which is good and bad, you might say, but it's not us. We are, we are not a troublemaker um, in this sense. Third element, 5G. Um, the critical element is how not to become over-dependent. Uh, we-, we are already dependent to some extent, so the-, the question is in what kind of spheres we do not like to become dependent. And I think military element is crucial. Um, but, but also functioning of, of our society is, is going to be an element that we need to make sure we understand in the EU. This is why I, I, some of the elements introduced by the EU recently, including the screening mechanism for indirect investment, is, um, is um, the step in the right direction. Um, having said so, I, I think this is one of the critical questions that we also need to uh, answer in NATO in, in, a, in a way which is not going to make uh, make China a, an adversary to NATO, uh, but we need to understand the consequences of, of the decisions that we are going to take on some of the technological elements.
6: Yeah, just two points on this, and it's a very interesting question. One is uh, I would like to echo what Dominic said about the, 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 the Chinese-U.S. relationship, and not only the bilateral relations, but also understanding from the U.S. side what is the Chinese influence and assessment of Chinese interests in in the region i think this is very important for the uh, for the the us foreign policy not only the the question of tariffs and and the bilateral economic relations but also actually understanding uh, the, the 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 influence and the, and the future influence the other thing is um regarding to this is how big of a market can we actually do and this is coming back to the v4 cooperation or the european cooperation how many people can we gather within our countries to actually have the market uh, large enough to make some sort of change, to be more attractive for investment and so on. Uh, Everything else I would say about the the, the G5 situation that I already have would be misleading you because it's it's way out of my area, so I'd rather stop here. Thank you very much. Uh,
3: If any one of you uh, have uh, any questions, we still have uh, one or two minutes for that. Okay. Sir. Anthony Kim, also with the
5: Harris Foundation. You may have talked about this earlier, I missed the earlier parts. But, you know, as much as you can share, what's your view on the current U- US EU trade talks? I mean, sometimes it seems like a U between US and German and French, but you guys are also part of the EU and you have an important stake on this talk. So without getting into all the ongoing negotiation details, not even negotiation, this political back and forth, how do you feel? I f- must think that you must be frustrated to a certain degree. Well, obviously,
4: uh, we as member states, we don't have the right to negotiate in the first. So it's Europe, the European Union, and the U.S. Uh, negotiating. Uh, of course, whatever will happen uh, will have a major impact on us. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a relatively important thing that Germany, as probably one of the biggest investors in all our countries, uh, uh, is coming out of this debate in a relatively fa- favorable position. Approximately one quarter of our economy is dependent on our on our German-Hungarian uh, trade. So for us, it is uh, an important question. Uh, we are all for uh, for free trade, free trade as much as possible, even zero tariffs if possible. Quite clearly, the US should not look at Europe as as the arch enemy uh, for its trade. And uh, if we look at the big picture. Uh, and not only talking about, uh, about surplus on this side or that side when it comes to goods. Uh, once you talk about services, it's the other way around. So, so I believe uh, it's very important to have a comprehensive look and all the benefits what European and, and U.S. trade and, and commerce uh, and exchange of scientific knowledge and many, many other things. We don't believe there's a better friend of the U.S. than Europe right now, and, and we are all for this.
0: For Czechs, very much the same, and we understand that the potential car tariffs would be really damaging for our economy. We are producing one car every 23 seconds in my country and Slovakia is even bigger in that. So the, so we, we found it a little bit weird that uh, the U.S. was hunting for Chinese, and we became a collateral victim, uh, basically. And we believe that there should be uh, really the, the, the way out. So we believe that uh, that the result of the talks, uh, especially where the new European Commission will, will, will be in place, will be much more successful, uh, and... Uh, it will be for the benefit of both sides. I, I will give you the only case example. The tariffs on steel and aluminum were not a big problem for us because it influenced us to 0.02% of GDP, almost nothing. The only thing which happened was that the steel we make and you buy became more expensive for the only person who, or the only entity who buys the Czech steel here, which is the US Army. So you made your army still more expensive. Why? I don't get it.
5: I fortunately sit at the other side of Brussels, so uh, I, don't, I don't have to deal with that personal feeling about it. Um, uh, my point is that I think we you are you are playing a bigger game, which is China. Um, and in that game, you need allies. And in, in in terms of trade, your ally is the EU. Whether whether we like it or not, I, f- I think even in our countries we have some um, some sympathy for for the EU on on that. So, but in the long term, I, I think I'll share what what the Czech ambassador said. Up, I, I think there, there's a way out of it uh, for a bigger benefit or a greater good, which is how we are going to make sure that um, China, which is posing the biggest challenge when it comes to uh, Trade and long-term stability of the economic situation is, is 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 being dealt in a comprehensive way by the U.S. and the EU. Could
6: just a quick four points because I'm the last speaker before lunch, so it's always challenging. Uh, we we as it was mentioned, we cannot negotiate by ourselves, but we sometimes find a way. If if we want negotiate on bilateral basis, we find we find a way how to do it. Uh, the second point, uh, it was also mentioned. Uh, that it's about the, the EU leadership. I think that we already know what is the Trump's uh, foreign policy and economic policy in this regard. Uh, what is their position? And the Secretary of Commerce says the same, and and other leader, leadership uh, is still there. So it's about the EU now, and we'll have the elections, European Parliament elections. So we'll have new commission. There will be you know new people in uh, in the EU. So uh, we'll see how that will go. And uh, third. Point I think very important is we we should look behind the numbers. We should not take the the trade relation just on mere look at. We give you you know more, you give us less. So that means that you know uh, just the the relationship isn't fair. I think we should look be, behind the numbers, beyond the numbers, because the the trade relationship is not only about numbers and goods and services. It's it has it's it has deeper meaning. And I think that the the transatlantic relations between the EU and and the US. Has been built since the Second World War, on something that is actually more than just economic trade. I think that the, the U.S. was investing in in friendship uh, rather than rather than just a, just a pragmatic relationship. I think that uh, the influence was much higher than than the numbers. So we are we are frustrating sometimes, but but I'm I'm very much positive that this will this will change for the good.
3: Thank you very much, and uh, I would like to thank all of you for uh, being. Here, first of all, uh, His Excellencies uh, Mr. Jankowski, Mr. Fischer, and uh, I would like also to thank you for the Heritage Foundation to host uh, this wonderful event. So, uh, thank you very much for being here.